Good morning. Welcome again to Morning Devotions. I'm Pastor Sumrall, the pastor of the Cathedral of Praise. And what a privilege it is to sit down with you every day and just read our Bibles and pray and worship together. We're going to start today with Psalms 91. Psalms 91. And please let me let me start by saying this. Young people, now we ask the kids to do this. We've asked seniors to do this. Now I'm asking the young people. And young people, I don't want you to memorize it. I'd like you to do something special for me. I'd like you to sit down outside under a tree, in a garden, someplace that's outside, because we're all so tired of being inside. Young people, you're locked out. But if you can get outside, get under a coconut tree. If you're in the province, you can walk outside in the backyard and just let us see the sky and the green grass and the rice fields. Let us see the outside. And just read to us Psalms chapter 91. Would you do that for us? And then send those to me right away or send them to Sister Bev or send them to your district pastor, however you get them to us, all right? Psalms 91, beginning with verse one. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked." Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Not some of them, all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him and I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. And with long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Oh, let's open up our hearts now and pray. Brothers and sisters, especially the seniors and the young people, you don't ever get out. But rather than look at this quarantine as a prison, look at this quarantine as an opportunity to focus on God. Rather than looking, young people, please, looking at the K-pop and the telenovelas and focus on God. Rather than getting focused on all your video games, please, you are so bored of those things right now, you can't hardly stand yourself. Why don't you focus yourself on someone who will never bore you, on someone that you'll never get enough of, on someone that is so infinite that you'll, you'll never know but a fraction of all that he is and who he is. Young people, let this be a time where you learn to pray. Maybe five minutes at first, and then a little more, and then a little more, and then a little more. Young people, just like I saw a planking video the other day where you start with one minute, and then you go to two minutes, and then you go to three minutes, and every day you add another minute. Why not every day as you go to pray, add another five minutes? Before long, you'll be spending time with God, and you won't even realize how, how long you've been there. 
there is nothing in this universe that is like his presence. Father, I come to you today in Jesus' name. We spent so much time bringing you all of our needs, all the concerns, all the problems, all the fears of your people. But today, Father, we simply come. And Lord, we want to dwell in you. Lord, we want to abide in you. We want your word to abide in us. And Father, we come in Jesus' name. I ask that you incline our hearts to your word. I ask that you stir up the spirit of prayer within us. But more than anything else, Lord, give us a hunger and a thirst for your presence, especially for the young people, Lord. Give them a hunger and a thirst for you. Lord, you said that if we seek you with all of our heart, we would find you. Some of these young people, Lord, they've never had encounters of the God kind. They've never had encounters with you. They're saved. They put their faith in you. But they've never discovered how real you are. Father, as they reach out to you, reach back to them. As they seek you with all their hearts, let them find you. In all of your wonder and all of your love and your grace and your mercy and your splendor, your tenderness. Lord, let your gentleness let your stooping down lift them up and make them great. Let them begin to understand how real your presence is in their lives. Father, I pray for all these college students, all these high school students, all the preteens in high school. Father, in the name of Jesus, let these young people have encounters. Lord, you know every one of their hearts. You know what needs to change. Reach within their hearts, Father, in Jesus' name. Give them encounters. Father, we keep seeing about the suicide rate. As people have been locked down for so long, businesses have been destroyed by this pandemic. Father, more people are committing suicide because of guilt than anything else, just like Judas of old. Guilt drove him to suicide. There are things that have been done in this quarantine, Lord, that have brought incredible guilt into the hearts of people. Father, I ask for a, a tsunami of forgiveness to flow. A tsunami of forgiveness to flow into every home, every young person's heart, every parent's heart, every Lolo and Lola. A tsunami of forgiveness, Lord, as even as they listen to this prayer, as they open their hearts to you, Lord, let the blood of Jesus wash them white as snow. Let the blood of Jesus bring justification into them. Restore unto them the joy of salvation, Lord. Let all this destructive guilt be broken off of their lives by the power of the blood of Jesus. Oh, I thank you for it, Father. Lift their heads. Be the lifter of your people's heads. Sin has bowed them in this time, Father. They've done things they're so ashamed of. But, oh, Father, be the lifter of their heads. Reach down and pick up their head. Jesus, just like you reached out to Peter, Jesus, reach into the heart of every young person. Reach into the heart of every parent. Reach into the heart of every Lolo and Lola. And lift their heads, Lord, and restore to them the joy of salvation. Break this guilt off of their lives, Lord, with the power of the blood and the power of forgiveness. I thank you for it, Father. Oh, I worship you, Lord. 
There is no one like you. Oh, there's no one like you. You are our Savior. You are our Redeemer. Oh, oh, you give forgiveness so rich and free. Let your grace and let your mercy flow. I thank you for it, Father. Thank you for the power of the blood of Jesus. Oh, I thank you for the power of the blood of Jesus. Oh, restoring unto them the joy of salvation, lifting their heads and making everything new again, breaking this guilt and this shame off of their lives. Father, in the name of Jesus, Jesus' name, the matchless name of Jesus, amen. Our government officials have asked us to help people with guilt. Well, I don't know any way to help people with guilt more than forgiveness. And I would say to some of our government officials that are asking us pastors to help people with guilt, let us have services again. You, you want the suicide to stop. Let people come into the presence of God. Let people come into his house. Let us gather together where Jesus walks among us and lifts people's heads. The restaurants can eat food without mask on. If divisoria can be jammed like sardine cans with people shopping, surely the house of God needs to be filled with people to break the guilt off of their lives. Now that's, that's my very submissive heart's cry to government officials, please. That's in no way rebellion. That's just a heart cry from a simple pastor. Let the people of God come into the house of God again. Let them enjoy the presence of God. Let the presence of God change them and lift them. Please, in Jesus' name. All right, let's open up our hearts and spend some time in worship.
Our New Testament passage today picks up in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1. Notice Paul's first statement. He says, pursue love. Now, now, love is not something that's going to come, just come to you. So let me just make that note. Love does not appear. It is pursued. If you want to walk in love, you have to pursue it. He said, and earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Now, notice, that does not have a date. There's no date. There's no date. It does not say, until... It doesn't say that. There's no, there is no secessionism theology taught here. Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, the beautiful gifts of the Spirit, speaking in tongues, prophecy, the gifts of healings, the working of miracles. Eagerly desire. This is something every believer should eagerly desire in their life. Now, I, I don't believe in the old Pentecostal thing where we just sit around and demonstrate the gifts in the services. Yes, the gifts will op operate in the services, but it's it's not like, now I have a word of knowledge. No, now I have a word of wisdom. Now, I believe these gifts function not only in services, but especially in everyday life. And I don't believe that they're announced. I just believe God gives you a word of wisdom. God gives you a word of knowledge. All of a sudden, you just know what to do. All of a sudden, you just know something. All of a sudden, you have a prophetic word to speak to somebody. And you don't have to look at people and go, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, who itst and whatst and is to come. Okay, you don't have to put on King James English to prove that you're speaking for God. You just share a word in season with the people. So the gifts of the Spirit aren't spooky. We should earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Now, I prophesy a lot, but I don't stand up and say, now this is a prophecy. I just speak. And there's a difference in the words when a prophetic utterance is coming forth. There's a difference in how it touches people's hearts. For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. Now, I, I've watched preachers stand up on platforms and speak to each other in tongues back and forth and say their spirits are speaking to each other. But that's not what the Bible says here. We don't speak to men, but we speak to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. So tongues, now this is our prayer tongues. This is not the, the tongues and interpretation gifts. Prayer tongues are to God. This is prayer. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. Now, so there's three purposes. Three purposes of New Testament prophecy. Upbuilding, building people up, encouragement, and consolation. I think um, another translation puts it edification, encouragement, and comfort. Now, that's the three purposes. It is never for guidance. Now, you have prophets of the Old Testament that speak clear directions to people. But under the New Covenant, we each have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We're all anointed. The anointing has come upon us all. So never should you 
believe anybody who walks up and says, thus saith the Lord, this is who you are to marry. Thus saith the Lord, this is what you are to do. You should never buy into that. No place in, in the New Testament is prophecy for direction or guidance. It's never for guidance. It's never for direction. Never. Okay? It's just not that. God guides us by his spirit. The sons and daughters of God are led by the spirit of God. The one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, all right? So our prayer language, effect of prayer tongues, builds himself up. But he who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. So, Apostle, listen, I want all of you to be praying in tongues. I want this, this beautiful prayer language to be in every one of your lives. I want you all to speak in tongues. Now, all means all. Now, again, there's no date on when that ends. So, every believer in the world should pray in tongues. <laughs> it is the initial physical evidence of the baptism of the Holy Ghost. But the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now this brings us to the fact that there are two types of tongues. There is the prayer language, and there is the gift. Now, the gift always functions with, with an interpreter. One gift of the Spirit is tongues. The other gift of the Spirit is interpretation of lungs, tongues. These are companion gifts, and they go together. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? He said, just walking around praying in tongues doesn't benefit anybody. Just walking around even with the gift of tongues without an interpretation doesn't benefit anybody. If even lifeless instruments, such as a flute or a harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is being played? If the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. Okay, he said, hey, no one's going to get you if you're just standing up with one part of tongues and just praying in tongues all the time. Like when you go to church, if all you do is pray in tongues, or if all you do is, is operate in the gift of tongues without interpretation, he said, ah, talking to the air. There are no doubt many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner or to the speaker, and the speaker will be a foreigner to me. Now, most of us here in Manila, when we go to Cebu, Cebuano and Tagalog is close enough that we can, we can get things figured out. I mean, even if we don't speak Cebuano, if we listen carefully, we can pick up enough words that we can figure out the conversation. But have you ever noticed when you go to Lawag? I mean, when I go to Luwag, I feel like I did when I first came to Manila and I didn't understand a single word that is said. Sometimes when everybody's speaking Ilocano, I just... Now, please, if you're Ilocano, don't be insulted with me. I'm trying to make a point. When you don't understand what people are saying, you're a stranger to them. When they don't understand what you're saying, they're a stranger to you. So he said, now listen, you understand that with regular languages. The same thing is true with spiritual languages. So with yourselves, since you are eager for the manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Okay, so eager, this comes back to earnestly desire for the manifestations. This manifestations, the Greek word here means the making clear or the 
um, the making clear or the revelation of. It's just the showing, okay? Making clear or showing. Strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, okay, because we want to build up the church, therefore, the one who speaks in tongue should pray for the power to interpret. This is why oftentimes you'll hear people give a tongue and they'll wait for a moment, let somebody else have an opportunity to operate in the gifts, and if they don't, the same person will bring the interpretation. Now, he said, you should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Now, here's the prayer language again. My mind is unfruitful. If I pray in a tongue, I have no idea what I just prayed for. So I will never know when God answers it. I will never be thankful. I will never be able to bless him for the answer to prayer. So what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, and I will pray with my mind. I will sing praise with my spirit, and I will sing with my mind. So prayer in both. Worship in both. Every day you should be praying in tongues. You, a, a season of your prayer life should be praying in tongues. And you shouldn't be ashamed of that. And every time you worship, a portion of that worship should be from the Holy Ghost. Just letting the Holy Ghost worship through you in a different language. Just singing in tongues. Now, praying in tongues, singing in tongues. Praying with the understanding, singing with the understanding. This is a balanced life of, of worship and prayer. Now, I, I've been around Christians that they never pray with the understanding. They only pray in tongues. They can pray in tongues for three hours. But if you listen to their regular prayer life, they're not comfortable in prayer. There are people that can sing for hours. All the chorus is written by man. But when it begins to move into singing in the Holy Ghost, they're very uncomfortable. You shouldn't be uncomfortable in either one. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in a position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? It's okay. There should be a portion of every service where we sing in the spirit, yes. But for an outsider, how can they say amen? They should also hear you singing with the understanding. For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. So there needs to be a balance in the services. Now, you know, I've got relatives that go around and teach people that, you know, uh, all the gifts of the Spirit, that's like running around your house naked, singing songs. It's great at home, but, you know, you shouldn't be doing it in church. It looks weird. Well, I'm sorry. The gifts of the Spirit are not weird. They should be a part of all of God's people's life in church and out of church. The gifts of the Spirit, speaking in tongues, these supernatural things are not weird. They are a part of our life. Now, there are people that have made them weird. I will grant you that, okay? But these are a part of our life and never something we should be ashamed of in Jesus' name. All right, let's open up our hearts and spend some more time in worship.
Our Old Testament passage today picks up in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. So let me make sure I get this turned on properly. There we go. Solomon says, for everything, there is a season. Okay, there's a right time for everything. There is a time for every matter under heaven. There's a time to be born. Okay, there's a time to die. A time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill, a time to heal. A time to break down, a time to build up. A time to weep, a time to laugh. A time to mourn, a time to dance. A time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek, a time to lose. A time to keep, a time to cast away. A time to tear, a time to sow. A time to keep silence, a time to speak. A time to love, a time to hate. A time for war, a time for peace. Now, let's just back up on all of that for a few minutes and understand what he is saying. You're going to have to understand you can't do things just when you want to do things. You have to learn that there's a right time to do things. There is a time to embrace, and there's a time to refrain from embracing. He said there's a time to keep silence, and there's a time to speak. Now, wisdom is understanding when these times are. And especially young people, this is something that you learn sometimes the hard way, or you can learn it by wisdom. But, you know, those that are older have gathered these things, and many have learned it in the hard ways. But young people don't learn it the hard way. Learn it with wisdom. Learn, okay, there's a time to, to love, and there's a time to hate. There's a time for war. There's a time to fight. And then there's a time for peace. He said, what gain has a worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. In its time. Everything gets beautiful in its time. A caterpillar is ugly. But when it goes through metamorphosis and becomes a butterfly, it's beautiful. Everything is beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done for him from beginning to end. Now, I want you to notice, God has put eternity into man's heart, not animals. Now, this is one of the great differences between man and primates and man and dogs. One of the early things I learned about dogs, my father taught me. Now, I've been around dogs since I was born. I mean, you know, my first dog was named Pal, and he was a, a rust-colored Cocker Spaniel. My second dog was named Penny, and she was a blonde Cocker Spaniel. My third dog was a big white German Shepherd. Okay, I mean, so I've, I've been around dogs since I was born. But nobody ever taught me this. I said, Dad, I, I don't want my dog to be lonely while I'm gone. And my dad said, dogs don't have a concept of time like humans have a concept of time. And I began to realize, okay, yeah, I mean, they're always happy to see you. I mean, you can walk out the door and walk back in in two minutes and they act like you've been gone all day, Diva. Those of you that are dog lovers, you know what I'm talking about. Now, I say all of that just to say that God has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done for him from beginning to end. We, we can't understand it all. But there is eternity in our hearts. We are immortal beings. We have a beginning and we have no end. We can't say that about animals. Man has a concept of eternity that is very unique in the species. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful, 
and to do good as long as they live. He said, this is, this is Solomon's perception. He said, that's my perception. There's nothing better for man than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Now, when he gets down to the last chapter, you'll see he thinks differently. Also, that everyone should eat, drink, and take pleasure in all his toil. That is God's gift to man. Pleasure in our work. He said, that is God's gift to man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. I like that. Whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken away from it. God has done it so that people will fear before him or show respect to God. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. All right. So that which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. This takes us back to what we read here earlier, that there is nothing new under the sun. Verse 16. I saw that under the sun, that in the place of justice. Now notice, under the sun, not heaven. Under the sun, that in the place of justice, even there is wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there is wickedness. Now, Solomon said, this really bothers me, that there can be corruption in the place of justice on earth. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. There's a time for every matter and there's a time for every work. God will judge the righteous and the wicked. He said, even if man don't judge properly, God will. I said in my heart with regard to the children of men, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. So man must learn. That without God, we're nothing. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from dust, and to dust all return. So, like all animals, we return to dust. Now, the difference is God has put eternity in our hearts. And the difference is God has put in us a living spirit. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? He said, who knows? Well, the Bible teaches us that. So I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? All right, we do not know the future. We do not know the future. But he said what we can do is rejoice in our work. Now, one of the things I'd like to challenge you all about is to just learn to enjoy what you do. Enjoying what you do is a gift of God. Chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors was power. And there was no one to comfort them. He said, now listen, this isn't fair. I saw wickedness in the place of judgment. And he said, I see power on the side of oppressors. And I thought the dead who were already dead were more fortunate than the living who are still alive. 
But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. He said, you know, it's a good thing for someone to never be born and to never see the evil deeds done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from man's envy of his neighbors. This too is vanity and striving after the wind. Now, Again, remember, down at the end of the book, we begin to see that this had been a very discouraged man who had turned away from God. And so because he turned away from God, he lost a lot of, he had no godly motivation. Now, in the world, in the world, this is true. But among the people of God, we have God speaking to us and telling us to do things. So that is different. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person has no other, either son or brother. Yet there is no end to his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This is also vanity and an unhappy business. He said, I saw those without an heir. He said, why are they working so hard? Why are they striving after riches? Again, you see the frustration of his heart. Brothers and sisters, one of the things you should learn going through Ecclesiastes is how muggle the human heart can get separated from God. Two are better than one because they have good reward for their toil. Two can get more done than one. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie down, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, Two will withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Um, one of the things you have to learn is a trinity. Three people is stronger than two. This is why sometimes it's better to have three. <laughs> better was a poor and wise youth. Poor and wise youth that an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. Ah, I know, maybe he's talking to himself a little bit. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he has been born poor. I saw all the living who move under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's palace. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him, Surely this is vanity and striving after the wind. Again, he begins to speak of his own future. Chapter 5, verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Guard your steps. Draw, to draw near to listen is better than to offer sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Ah. When you come to the house of God, draw near to listen. 
Now, Solomon had done some of the biggest offerings in the Jewish people's history. But he said, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Sometimes you need to go to church not to give. You need to go to church to listen. See, sometimes people get into giving because they think they're supporting God. God doesn't need your support, okay? We give as an act of worship. But, you know, people, when they get wealthy, they begin to think that, you know, God needs them. And so they offer the sacrifice of fools. He said, it's better to draw near and listen. Be not rash with your mouth. So there's a rash mouth. Let not your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Now, I love to pray, okay? I love to pray, but here is a great truth in prayer. I am not a person. Now, I, I will spend hours in prayer when there's a burden that comes upon me. But I am not a person who just brings lots of words to God and repeats myself over and over again. Now, if it takes me an hour to say everything that needs to be said to God in prayer, it'll take me an hour. If it takes me two hours to say everything that needs to be said to God in prayer, it'll take two hours. If it takes five minutes for me to say everything that needs to be said, it's five minutes. Now, I learned this from my grandpa. And this is one of the verses that my grandpa taught me. He said, let your words be few. You know, there's nothing worse than somebody who just comes into the presence of greatness and just shoots their mouth off. They're always talking and never listening. Have you ever tried to talk to somebody who's too busy answering, who's too busy talking to you? Yeah, you just, you just get quiet. He said, when you come to the presence of God, draw near to listen, don't draw near to talk. You see, that's, that's the forgotten part of prayer. People forget that when you come to pray, you don't come to do all the talking. You come for a conversation. You come to listen. He said, now, for dream, for as a dream comes with much business, so a fool's voice with many words. Now, there's two truths I want you to notice there. First, I want you to notice the cause of dreams. Overwork. Sometimes the reason you dream is because you need a break. Okay? And he said, in the same way that you've been overworking and then you have dreams, he said, a fool's voice... Always has many words. I like what another passage says. Every man seems wise when his mouth is closed. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it. Why? Because God has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. When you make a vow to God, you know, it, it's, it's not a sin not to make a vow to God. But when you do make a vow to God, a vow is nothing but a relationship promise. A vow is a relationship promise, okay? Just like you promise a friend, I'll meet you at Mall of Asia at 3 o'clock. It's very irritating to people when you don't keep those relationship promises. Now, God's made promises to you, and he keeps them. So he looks at you and says, when you make a promise, when you make a vow to God, do not delay in paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should make a vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? 
This is a problem for unfulfilled vows. When people make vows and they don't fulfill them, it brings destruction to the work of your hands. Now, you, ha you have to understand this. God's not just... Let me put it to you this way. A vow brings immediate blessings. When you make a promise to God, God acts as if it's already been done. God, I'm going to sow this seed. God acts as if the seed is already sowed. Now, God is going to lift those blessings if you don't fulfill those vows. And things that have been created because of that vow will be lost. When dreams increase, words grow many. There is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For a high official is watched by a higher, and there are higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He said, now, don't be surprised. He said, now listen, there's always somebody who's somebody's boss. He said, so when you see the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice, he said, don't be amazed. He said, that high official is being watched by somebody. And there's somebody even watching the watcher. And then the king's watching everybody. But this is a gain for a land in every way. A king committed to cultivated fields. He said, now, you want to know what makes a nation blessed? A king committed to the land prospering. Now, that's what, that, that is what will bring gain for a land. When a president, when a king is committed to the prosperity of a land, and notice the word committed, they're not committed to just, well, how do I go through the next four years or six years? They're, they're committed to growing a nation. They're committed to causing there to be food on everybody's table. When, when you're committed to developing the economy in a, of a nation, that is a great blessing. Verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. All right, so people who love money, you're never going to be able to give them enough money. Now, th this is a great truth about salaries. This is a truth about the human heart. When it comes to paying people, if they love money, you can never give them enough. If they love wealth, they're never going to be satisfied with their income. See, when people find their satisfaction in God, it's not hard to keep them on payroll. But when people love money, they're never going to be satisfied with money. And when they love wealth, they'll never be satisfied with their income, with what you pay them. All right, truth, truth for human resource folks. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has the owner but to see them with his own eyes? He said, all right, when you... When you prosper, <laughs> prosperity brings consumption. Have you ever noticed that when you're doing well and you're making a lot of money, you've got a lot of relatives coming over to your house? You've got a lot of relatives asking for money? When goods increase prosperity, they increase those who eat them. Sleep, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. All right, here's a great secret to sleep. 
The sleep of the laborer is sweet. He's tired. He's worked hard all day. Now, let me give you a little secret. In this lockdown, some of you are having trouble sleeping at night because you're not doing enough in the daytime, okay? Sleep is, sweet is the sleep of the laborer. But you know, people who just sit around and eat their last meal at 10 o'clock at night and they eat like a pig. Oh, they lay there and their stomach hurts all night. Do you want to really sleep well? Work hard during the day. Uh, a pastor walked up to me one time and he was always taking sleeping pills. And he said, do you want one? I said, I never take those things. He said, well, you're getting older now. Don't you have trouble sleeping? I said, I probably sleep more now that I'm older than I did when I was younger. I said, you know, when I was younger, I always said, when you wake up, you get up. So four hours, I'm up. But as I gotten older, I've learned to make myself lay in the bed and try to fall back to sleep again. But I said, you know what? I work hard. And when you work hard, you don't need something to help you sleep. Okay? Your body is tired. Sweet is the sleep of the laborer. There is a grievous evil I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. Hoarding. So that's an evil. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but has nothing in his hand, no inheritance. He said, now that's a hard thing. As he came from his mother's womb, so he shall go again. Naked he came, and he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away from his hand. Okay? Um, you hear me use the statement, you can't take it with you. When you die, everything stays here. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, he shall go. And what gain is there for him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation, sickness and anger. Behold, I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat, drink, and find enjoyment in all the toil with one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his light, lot. Enjoy your work. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth, possessions, and power to enjoy them, to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is a gift of God. Now, God gives you wealth, God gives you possessions, and God gives you the power or the ability to enjoy them. He said, this is a gift of God. You know, have you ever met rich people who, um, forgive me, are miserable? They have wealth, they have possessions, but they have no ability to enjoy them. You should enjoy what you have. Verse 20. And he will not remember much the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. <laughs> you know, you're not busy looking backwards because you're busy enjoying today. Brothers and sisters, I like being around people like that. You don't remember all the hard stuff. You don't remember all the difficult stuff because God is keeping you occupied with the joy of your heart today. All right, let's, we'll see you tonight. Seven o'clock.